Recovery Elevator, episode 416. You know, I, I made a couple mental decisions about how I was going to approach this that changed things, but I've done those before, except this time it just, everything clicked into place in a, in a way that it hasn't before. And, you know, and now my mindset now is that, you know, I don't drink anymore. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix down. Four, there we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four, Welcome three, to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Mike. He's 59 years old from Newport, Oregon. He took his last drink on January 27th, 2022. Hell yes, Mike. Listeners, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors. It is Soberlink. They are using technology to create accountability in a neat way. They use a high-tech, portable breathalyzer system that A, uses facial recognition technology to verify identity, B, has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and C, here's the cool part, sends results to your specified contacts. If you're looking for a concrete way to build accountability with loved ones, Soberlink is the way to go. There's a link in the show notes for a $50 offer. Okay, this Saturday, we are getting our sober ukulele on at noon Eastern for six weeks. We've got four rock star sober instructors lined up. You'll find yourself practicing in small groups, and there's a chance you'll find yourself playing somewhere over the rainbow while looking at an actual rainbow, but that's up to you. So again, this six-week course starts this Saturday, and there's a link in the show notes for more info and how to sign up. Thank you, Robin. And I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job. All right, listeners, let's get started. Today, I want to talk to you about the alcohol-free beverage or how to perfect the AF beverage. And AF means alcohol-free. So when quitting drinking, the thinking mind creates 99 problems or alcohols, but what to drink when we ditch the booze shouldn't be one of them. In fact, exploring the alcohol-free beverage world is and should be a lot of fun. In fact, I have a dream, and it consists of a national or even international AF beverage tour where you collect stamps at different locations across the globe with each AF drink consumed. Let's make it happen, listeners. Okay, so in this episode, I'm going to give a couple AF drink recommendations, but first, let me tell you the best ways to do the AF beverage. So it consists of three key pillars with two additional options. Number one is the drink, AKA the liquid you're drinking. Number two, temperature. You going hot or are you going cold? Number three, the glass or the cup. Okay, let's chat the drink. Now I'll cover shortly what I'm drinking these days, but ultimately this is for you to discover. And again, it should be fun. So you're gonna be your own barista in your kitchen, your garage, or on your backyard patio, or in your basement with your beakers, your test tubes, or your Bunsen burners. I encourage you to mix and match creations as your heart desires. Make impulse buys at your local grocery store. Maybe your drink consists of bubbles, lots of bubbles, maybe no bubbles. Maybe invite your friend who has nicknamed Bubbles over to drink these drinks with you. All right, let's talk number two, temperature, which is super important. 
there is something special about a chilled beverage on a hot day, or the inverse, a hot beverage on a cold winter's day. With ice, keep in mind it melts, thus adding additional H2O to your beverage. A true AF barista will take into account the rarefication of a beverage when the ice melts, thus recommending an ideal time frame to consume a beverage. And side note, with ice, it was Dr. Masuro Emoto in the mid-90s who conducted experiments on how your thoughts can influence freezing ice, or melting ice as well. To summarize, if you send love or happy thoughts to freezing ice cubes, the ice crystals form in beautiful harmonious patterns. On the contrary, if you talk shit to your ice, I kid you not, then it will freeze in fractured broken shards. I mention this because I have heard of people meditating to their ice before inserting their ice into their alcohol-free drinks. I do not do this, but I find the concept and supporting science fascinating. All right, let's talk the third pillar, which is the glass. And this is usually overlooked, but it brings the whole AF beverage together. After years of trial and error, I have landed on my favorite glass, which is a plastic stemless wine glass as my glass of choice. In fact, I found my favorite version of this a couple weeks ago at Bed Bath & Beyond, thank you Christmas gift certificate, which is a plastic stemless wine glass with an expanded lip at the top. I know, I'm sure Oppenheimer and Einstein had a hand in this creation. So why do I prefer plastic to glass? It's because I will eventually break the glass while washing it. I've done this about six times, which is why I go plastic. I also prefer the shape of the stemless wine glass for the swirling or the mixing of the AF beverage. Let's take the shape of a classic pint glass. As you swirl with fervor or mix your AF beverage in a pint glass, sometimes the liquid flies out of the top. I know, huge first world problem. But with the closing of the wine glass at the top, this does not happen and allows for a seamless swirl without worry of the contents flying out. Now let's talk options, features, upgrades, or accessories. Number one, the garnish. I had a mentor once tell me that less isn't more, less is way more. Now I rarely garnish a drink at home because my drink doesn't need it. However, when cruising the town, I almost always request a lime or a lemon garnish. So get creative with your garnishes is what I recommend. Why not add a slice of honeydew to the lip of your cup? Or maybe a brown sugar maple rim. I call that a brown sugar maple rim job, but be careful entering that into a Google search. Number two, optional, is the straw. Let's face it, some beverages are tastier at the bottom, requiring a straw to access those contents. I do recommend a reusable straw because I think nature is rad. So those are the things I want you to keep in mind when crafting your alcohol-free beverages. And when you quit drinking, you're going to save money, lots of it. My recommendation is go big on AF beverages and stock your fridge. As Tom Haverford says from Parks and Rec, treat yourself. Now, there is a store called World Market. And no, this is not a sponsorship, but they have an incredible selection of alcohol-free drinks from all over the world. A couple days ago, I stocked up on an imported sparkling French soda that was blood orange grapefruit flavored. Bingo. They also have your classic lemonade, which is also delicious. This 25 ounce drink, which comes in a reusable tall glass container, was right around the $5 mark. And I bought all three of the flavors that World Market stocks. I then bought Elder Flower Syrup Mixer from Belvar Farms out of the UK, 
also an import, which is also sold at World Market for $11. You can get this elder flower syrup mixer from Amazon, but that sells for $15. So I recommend getting it at World Market. So here's what I'm drinking now. Um, apart from the classic soda water splash of crayon with a lime garnish, that's when I'm out on the town. But at my house, here's what I'm doing. In a plastic stemless lip expanded wine glass cup, I feel I fill it nearly full of ice. Let's go about seven eighth full. And then I add the blood orange grapefruit soda, halfway full, and then about a fourth of San Pellegrino's just straight up sparkling water, then probably one to two ounces of elderflower syrup mixer. I then start swirling hard for probably four to six seconds. I do not add a garnish because it doesn't need one. Next, I enjoy. And with each sip, I recall the journey. And gosh darn, has it been a journey and I wouldn't change a thing. So listeners, stop riding the kiddie rides when it comes to alcohol-free drinks. Quitting drinking is the opportunity of a lifetime. And one branch of that is exploring the AF beverage world. Maybe we'll bump shoulders at World Market someday. <laughs> that would be rad. Okay, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this intro, and I'm serious. Go big with the alcohol-free beverage. Treat yourself. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Mike. How many times have you felt like you can't make positive changes in your life if you aren't feeling 100%? I know that for me, I don't always feel like I'm at my best. I've learned through therapy, though, that not feeling my best does not equal to not feeling empowered. I can accept my emotional wobbles and still feel empowered to take care of myself and my mental health. We have agency. We can get to the point where we trust ourselves enough to move forward in the right direction. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient and flexible. Also, it's entirely online. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional cost. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Mike. Mike, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. Trying to stay warm, but other, <laughs> other than it's winter in North Dakota, I'm doing well. Thanks for agreeing to come on the show, Mike. I'm excited to to visit with you. Um, can you let listeners know how long that you've been sober? Uh, it's 323 days. 323. Closing up on that one year mark, how are you feeling? Good, good. It, um, I'm actually looking forward to getting to that one year mark. That's pretty exciting. Are you uh, a day counter? Like you, you pay attention to that stuff? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I did too. Definitely, definitely in my first year, I was always watching and that that's, I mean, that's a big, that's a big milestone. So that's really exciting. And that's cool, man. I'm excited for, I'm excited for you to get there. I know you will. Before we get into it, Mike, uh, can you let listeners know a little bit about yourself, where you live, what you do for a living family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? So I'm, um, I live out on the Oregon coast. I'm actually from Seattle, but I've lived all over the country on both East and West coast. I've been in the restaurant business for most of my life. So about 40 some odd years. And I got out of it right before the pandemic. And now I, I manage a deli in a, a rather large Safeway. 
it's kind of still like doing a restaurant. It's just shaped a little bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's definitely uh definitely a, a different change of pace. I, I I really like it a lot. It's um, coming up on about three years now of of doing uh, the deli business. So and what I do for fun is is aside from my regular work, I I also I'm a writer. So I write fiction mostly. I've edited some books for a few people. My girlfriend does graphic design. So she does like the covers and the interiors and stuff. And I, I edit the words, but uh, mostly now I'm trying to focus on uh, one of the reasons I stopped doing the restaurants was to have more time to do my writing. That didn't work out so much as I worked <laughs> out the same amount of hours, but I got a, I had a piece published this year, which is nice in, in an actual book. And I got a few more floating around for other magazines. So I'm kind of just doing the normal waiting for either rejection letters or acceptance ones. You never know which way it's going to go. But uh, So that's most of my, and when I'm not doing that, I the other reason I moved to Newport is I get to walk on a beach anytime I want. You know, I'll eat, even when it's cold and rainy here, which is a lot of the time. But, uh, you know, the, the beach is pretty close to my backyard. I can see the ocean and the bay from where I live right from my desk. So right where I'm sitting right now, I can see the ocean. Oh, wow. Flat, blue, and there's no clouds today, so it's kind of nice. That's awesome, man. The Pacific Northwest is a place that I've never spent really any time, and it is absolutely on my list of somewhere that I want to see. After all the traveling I had done, living in different parts of the country, that I would end up here eventually, and uh, or end back up here, I should say. So I actually picked this place on purpose. I used to vacation here all the time, and then when I decided to get out of the corporate restaurant world, this is where I ended up. Very cool. Quick question. In terms of your writing, is there like a, a specific genre? I know you said you like to do fiction. Is there a certain type of story that you like to write or do you kind of float around? I kind of float around. Some stuff that's science fiction-y, some stuff is just sort of out there. And some of it's just like a day in the life of a person kind of thing. Very cool. That's neat. All right, Mike. Well, let's do what we came here to do and uh, talk about alcohol. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with alcohol, how it started. We'll, it's, we'll get into the progression and how you felt along the way. You know, alcohol is part is like it comes with the restaurant business, whether you want to want it to or not. And it's um, especially, you know, I started in the business in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, there were really no holds barred at all. There mm -hmm. were no strings attached. I mean, if you were a bartender, you drank with your customers. If you were you know, a cook, you had the drinks after work or sometimes during, but usually after. And so it's just part of the culture. And I don't even know at what point, you know, I knew that it was just, to me, it was just normal. At the point where it started to impact me and become normal, that uh, abnormal, that was, you know, later on. But I never really thought about alcohol as anything other than a part of my daily life because it, it was. Um, so I started cooking when I was like, 15 or 16. So I started drinking when I was like 15 or 16. But as you know, and when I was in college, and you know, that then, and I worked all my way through college, too. So it wasn't until, you know, after that, and you know, you're out in there, you know, I never stopped working in the restaurant business, even though I did a few other things. So the drinking was always there. It's like part of the background. I, uh, I'm a big Anthony Bourdain fan. And I just re listened to his first book, I think it was Kitchen Confidential. Right. And it just, that was the first time I, I read it years ago, but that was the first time I'd heard it in, in recovery. And I, it just, it hit a little different the way he talked about the 
the usage just industry wide? Yeah, he, he was in New York. I was in DC for the most time during that. And so the the hard drugs weren't as much of a big deal where I was working. Um, I was never around it. Um, alcohol is the only thing I ever messed with. I'd be in rooms with people doing all kinds of other stuff, but yeah. you know, they could spend their hundreds of dollars on one thing and I'd have my whiskey and I'd be okay with that. <laughs> but but his book was pretty close to it. I mean, it's and I have over the years, I've lost a lot of friends in the business who who just couldn't couldn't control it and it, and eventually it it consumed them. Yeah. So in those early years, you know, you, you said that you were 15, 16 when you started cooking and it very quickly became just kind of a part of your life. At that age, were there other people in your life who maybe weren't in the industry who who expressed any concerns? Did you ever get any any feedback about your usage or were you just kind of left to your own? Pretty much left to my own, it, especially once I, you know, um, family is, you know, my family was one thing. I didn't live near where they did. After I grad, after I got into college, um, I ended up in D.C. They ended up moving back to the West Coast, so I was like three thousand miles away from most of my family. So all of my friends were in the restaurant business. Everyone I associated was in the business, um, and if the people I didn't know in restaurant business also, they all worked in politics, which really is no different <laughs> um, as far as as the partying and and stuff goes goes with it. So yeah, it was. I really didn't have any outer feedback you know my first wife worked in the restaurant business and and although alcohol eventually is one of the one of the factors that contributed to that marriage not not working out but it was something that we both did and that was a happy divorce that was one of those mutual ones they don't happen very often <laughs> yeah the other one that's a different story but you had that confirmation bias in place where it's it's everything around you is everyone's kind of doing the same thing so you're yeah it was normal. you were good to go all right. Well, let's keep walking us forward, Mike. Um, it's probably after I left the DC area and moved back to the West Coast. And that was after I got my divorce. And in the back of my mind, yeah, I, I knew there was stuff that it just didn't make sense. But, you know, I still worked in the business and, you know, you get off of work here. Here's a shift drink. I'm like, OK, you know, I didn't have any big consequences. I got DUIs later on, but not back then. But, you know, back in the uh, you know, late seventies, early eighties, sometimes you got pulled over, they would just follow you home, you know, and make sure you got home. Okay. It wasn't, you're automatically getting tossed in. I mean, I got pulled over a couple of times where I should have, something should have happened, but didn't. And then you're just like, Oh, I got lucky, you know? And, and, yeah. and then the next day you just do the same thing. Um, because again, in, in your mind, it's kind of normal. I would from time to time think like, okay, if I just get out of the restaurant business, I can break the cycle. But and looking back on it now, it's like, I didn't ever do that. Maybe, you know, it's hard to tell what came first. It's like, you're in the restaurant business and everybody drinks or everybody drinks. So the restaurant business makes that easier for you. I've yeah. never really fully understood which which way it was that, that it happened for me. Um, I've thought about it a lot. In the end, I decided it didn't really matter because it's still what I did anyway. But being in the business, it's, there were times, there have been times where I've been where I haven't been drinking and still working. And it's, it's hard, you know, in the group, you know, you see people talking people who are in the business and, you know, nowadays their conversation is a lot more honest about it, especially over the last five or 10 years. Um, but before that, and no one ever questioned it. You know, you mentioned that you thought that if you got out of the industry, that, that maybe you'd be able to make a change 
just curious, what sort of internal thoughts were you having? Like, what was that dialogue? What what was happening in inside of you? What were you thinking that was that was even like bringing up that thought? I mean, was there some in, internal conflict? Were you having like emotional consequences or like actual consequences? Did you what sorts what sorts of things were kind of pr- prompting that that thought to to begin with? Even, I mean, there was some soul searching kind of stuff after my divorce. You know, it's like where alcohol was, you know, it was a factor. It was something. So was the business. Um, you know, I, I would normally work 60 to 80 hours a week. And that didn't include the time you'd spend after you get off of work. You know, restaurant might close at midnight. You don't get home till 3.30 in the morning. And that was a normal thing. So that it was, it starts to take a toll on on just mentally and physically. And, and it did take a toll on on my life too as far you know with my relationships and every now and then you get this idea is like well you know this is what i like to do this is what i'm really good at is it really worth it you know and i i still had this idea of, of doing the writing full-time and i tried to you know apply to a couple different magazines and and newspapers of course by then everyone wanted you to have a journalism degree instead of when i went to college everyone was supposed to have a degree in something you wanted to write about now you had to have this journalism degree too. So, and then, and then I was too old. They're like, why would you give up a $90,000 a year job to intern at our magazine? So you might have a chance at a $20,000 a year job. <laughs> and so I never really, while I thought about it, I never really pulled the trigger on it partially because I, I just couldn't find an opportunity that made sense. So it, that it still took me another, you know, 20 years of, of doing this before I decided to, to actually make a change. Yeah. Gosh, that sounds like a uh, like a tough place to be, Mike. To to know to feel that internally, like this is kind of eating away at me, and I know that I need to make this shift, and I know that there's this other passion, and then but just to not to not be able to see a way or to be able to to find a way, and then I, I've got to imagine that to some extent that that perpetuated the drinking too, just to that unrest on the inside. Yeah, and and part of the you know the the thought process in your head too is like part of my job as a a restaurant manager, whether it was as a chef or, or manager, is I would throw people out of the bar because they were too drunk to keep drinking, <laughs> and then I would sit down in the same stool that they were sitting in and drink until it was time for me to go. You know, yeah. it, it's it's one of those weird you get stuck in this little rabbit hole of this is what I do for a living. And people go over the edge and I see it all the time and I'm going over the edge, but I don't see it for myself. Yeah. I think sometimes we definitely put those blinders on just as a, as a means of survival during this time, Mike, did you have any, any sort of rules? Did you, did you, did you do anything to try to manage like having this recognition that this, this is becoming a problem that alcohol is an issue. Were you doing anything to try to, to manage it? Um, yeah, I mean, I would like, okay, let's not, let's not do shots all night long while we're working. I never really drank in the morning. Like I wasn't a, a wake up in the morning and drinking person because either I'd still be hungover enough or, or whatever, but I had, a, you know, I had a function, I highly function early in the morning. Normally a chef shows up at the restaurant at like, if the restaurant opens at 11, you know, I have to be there at like six and, mm-hmm. cutting, you know, cutting fish and cutting meat and writing menus and doing budgets and, and being on phone calls and things like that. So you had to be, 
I had to be like really highly functional early in the morning. So, you know, I had like, okay, we don't mess around in the morning and get through lunch. Once the lunch rush is over, okay, I'll, then you can do whatever it is you want or need to do. Other than that, no, <laughs> you know, there weren't a lot of rules other than I, at the time at when I moved back to these, to this, actually when I was in DC too, um, because I lived in big cities and downtowns, I didn't drive because I, I rarely owned a car because it was more expensive to park it than, than to take, um, to get around in a big city. It was kind of weird. Uh, the first time I actually, not first time, but I bought a car when I was like 40 years old and I had to go through the credit check thing. And they're like, you never owned a car. Said, well, that's true. <laughs> you know, I, I had one like when I was in high school, but, and that's because I always lived in big cities. So I never had to worry about the whole drinking and driving thing. So, yeah. but once I had a car, then I did. And then I started to set up rules, which I broke uh, way too many times. But it's like, you know, if you're going to take the car, then you can't drink till you get where the car is going to stay or, or that. And, you know, over the course of this time, I mean, I've, I've had three DUIs in, in my lifetime, which is, and most of them have been in the last, actually all of them have been in the last 15, 18 years. So I, you know, I had rules about that, but they didn't work very well. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of funny how we, we have these dreams of, of control and we have the, you know, we, we set all these things in place to try to make sure we're going to be okay. And then somehow it's like, we always find a way to deviate from that. Yeah. You know, even the last one I had, I, I only had to drive a quarter of a mile. I could have walked that quarter of a mile, but I didn't. You know, and I knew I should have walked that quarter of a mile, but I still did it anyway, uh, which was not smart. Well, let's let's keep the the timeline. Let's keep going forward in the timeline. So when I was 40 and this is after basically living, I've been living by myself. I, I was traveling from city to city, opening new restaurants for a company. So I was always in a different city. I rarely knew people. So I didn't have to worry about you know, a whole, I lived in hotels mostly, so I didn't have to worry about a whole lot of stuff, but I got, I got married, had a, we had a kid. So I was a first time dad when I was 40 and alcohol totally messed up that whole thing. And it was, it was at that point, it like was start, it was impacting my job. It was impacting the relationship. We ended up getting divorced and my son was like three and um, I've hardly ever seen him since. And that is largely to my, it's my fault. You know, it's, he doesn't live that far away from here. He's, he's up in Vancouver, but his mom and I don't speak, never have since the whole thing. And, and alcohol was, had a big part about it. It was also the first time I ever tried. I did outpatient thing with the, for the first time. And I did that on my own. I didn't even, it wasn't like a, a court order thing. And I, that was the first time I tried AA, you know, I was trying all these different things to, but I was doing it all to try to like fix the marriage or save the marriage. Yeah. And, and that did, it didn't work. And then when it didn't work, I kind of like gave up on the whole treatments, AA meetings and all that kind of stuff for, for like another 12 years. So I just, you know, so I tried, I, I did it. I took a stab at the whole, I think I made it eight months. But then the, when the marriage completely started to fall apart, I just, I was like, well, that, it, that didn't work. So. Yeah. Uh, I think that's something a lot of us 
a lot of us have done. I know for sure my, you know, when I entered treatment, it was a hundred percent to, to try to appease my wife. And I think these, these can be good motivations to, to get started, but, but, you know, you, you bring up a good point is that there's, I think it's, I think we've got to find something else to keep us in it too, because if that, that goal that, you know, whether it's the marriage or a relationship, if, you know, there's, there's no guarantee that that, that that person or that, that thing is going to stick around. And if they choose to go anyway, or if it, or if it dissolves, you know, however that plays out, then if that was the only thing that we were going for, that, that puts us in a precarious situation. Yeah. It just, it, it just kept spiraling. There was nothing really to, to, to stop it at that point, you know, and then now I'm living on my own again and, you know, there's no one else in the house to say anything. So there's no, no handrails, so to speak. Yeah. You know, I think there's these transition points in our life that, that can, I I just talked about this on another interview. There's these transition points in our life that can affect our usage and, you know, that, that loss of of a partner and and a relationship with a child that's I got to believe that alcohol probably stepped in as a, as a bit of a comforter as you, as you were dealing with that as well. Oh, absolutely. Cause then it, with the alcohol, then you don't have to deal with it. It just goes away for, you know, for a little <laughs> while. It never really goes away. Yeah. It's that, that thing. It, it can kind of slow that, that mind, all the stuff that we're thinking and, and what we're feeling It it dulls that edge and, and helps us helps us get through it like in air quotes helps us i mean meanwhile causing a shitload more problems and then you know, along that time after that is when when the consequences started to pile up you know that's when i got a, a couple of duis in relatively you know, within five years of each other and and that's when you know i started to have to do like the court ordered go to AA and, and you know alcohol counseling sessions and, and meetings but you know, they don't really, it, it, as long as you showed up and you checked their boxes, I mean, they didn't really care. And so the motive it was, and again, that for those things, I was doing it for that. You know, I wasn't, I still at that point, I would never at that point say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not ever drinking again, or I can't drink again. I would be like, okay, I got to get through this. This is something I have to do. As soon as it's done and it's like, okay, but at least each time I did it, I learned something about, you know, having to go to AA for, you know, for 90 days or, and go to these counseling classes and and stuff. I mean, I did learn things out of it and that has kept the, I think every time, every little bit I learned has made this last stretch, which has been a completely different mindset. I accumulated little bits of knowledge here and there. I just wasn't ready to quit drinking at that point. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you if, even if it was, you know, in that moment, even if it was just a means to an end, that's, I don't know if cool is the right word. It doesn't feel like the right word, but anyway, it is, we'll just use it. It is, that Maybe there were seeds being planted, just, you know, that, that there's nuggets that you were able to absorb. And even if you weren't, even if you weren't in a place where you were necessarily ready to put that into application, but it was, it was still some knowledge and some data that you're able to obtain learning about yourself or the disease or, or what recovery could look like. Yeah. And I've always like, I, I like pride myself on being a really good researcher. So like if I'm, 
coming up with a new dish for the restaurant and it, even say a fish I've never used before or something I've never done. Like I'll learn everything there is to learn about it. Uh, and I'll try, you know, I'll, I'll order samples off of online. I'll do whatever, you know, try different things. Um, when I do research for some of the stories I write, I mean, you know, I'll have 2,000 or 10,000 words worth of research for an 1,800 word story. And so I kind of looked at a lot of this. I mean, I accumulated all this like research into, into alcohol and recovery. And at that point, I was still trying to, I think a lot of it is like trying to think my way or reason my way through this. And, and it's like, it was a problem to be solved rather than, you know, something to do. And, but I, you know, even then, I don't think I ever really conceived of the idea is like, maybe I should just not drink at all. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, here's an interesting fact. Okay. Now I have that fact. And so a lot of it, I mean, I have pages of notes because I journal all the time and I, I go, I've gone back over the last year and grabbed some, I still have journals from like the eighties and, and stuff, all my writing journals I have. And I gone back and I, I've looked at some of them and I was like, there are a lot of places in my journals where I talk about, I had way too much to drink. And this isn't, you know, great. I mean, there's, there's pages from the, you know, 83, 84. Yeah. Where I may have gone on a rant to myself in, in my journals, like, and now I can look and then it was just like, okay, I read this and it was interesting. And looking back at it now, I was like, why didn't I pay attention to myself? You know, I'm, I, here I am writing it down, you know, coming out of my own head and, but I didn't listen. So I have all these, you know, pages of all these notes of thoughts about, Hey, this is not working for you. But it never really clicked into place until until this year. Yeah, those can be some really tough moments to look back at, like when the evidence was, I mean, it was there for us then and it was so clear. But for whatever reason, it's just the, the stars didn't align and we didn't, you know, we didn't take the bait. And that, sometimes that can be tough to reconcile. But if if nothing else, we can at least have the gratitude that whatever whatever took hold this time that that it did and that we're that we're here today with it yeah christy's at christy's my my girlfriend we've been together almost nine it'll be nine years actually next week and so she's been with some of the good and the, the bad parts in fact she's the one who first found recovery elevator as just something else i might want to try because nothing else was was sticking or working and and she's like i don't know what it is that just clicked in your brain last January, because I joined uh, RE in September of, of 21. And I and uh, my notes from back then are just a big spin cycle of day ones and day fives and back to day one again. But, you know, I, I made a couple mental decisions about how I was going to approach this that changed things. But I've done those before, except this time it just everything clicked into place in a, in a way that it hasn't before. And, you know, and now my mindset now is that, you know, I don't drink anymore. Um, it's not like I'm doing this to get through a, a period of my life. So things will be, you know, whatever. If I hadn't quit, we probably wouldn't be having our ninth anniversary, but yeah. I didn't, but I didn't do it for that reason this time. I, I it would have stuck anyway, I, I think. Um, and part of that, I, I, I honestly think it's just, I made a commitment to not just do this, not drink, thing but to fully invest in it every single day you know and every day i write about it every day i i i i think about it i i engage in you know 
AA didn't really work for me, especially here in Newport. Mm-hmm. It's such a small town. Like the AA group is like the same 15 people. And so you hear the same 15 stories <laughs> over and over and over again. And none of them were in the restaurant business. They couldn't even understand how I could even conceive of like staying in the business and trying to do this. People would tell me it's never going to work for you unless you quit your job or do something different. And I didn't want to hear that. And so it didn't really work. You know, and I tried the the online uh, counseling thing with like, you know, better health. It was and that didn't really work for me either because the guy just agreed with what I said and told me to, <laughs> well, you, you have a, a good grasp on what you're thinking about. And I'm like, but it's not working. So <laughs> uh, that didn't work for me either. Uh, this community really that's what what made the difference for me and 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 part of that is is every day you know being doing it every single day since january since the 27th i have made a post on every single at least once every single day for the last 300 and i have a i keep i even have a folder where i i copy them over to and it's like forty three thousand words so far of posts on RE. And and that's part of I start when I started to do it, I didn't know I'd still be doing it. But um it was just to to hold myself accountable. But now it's 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 for that too, but it's also to give back. I think what switched in my mind and made it work is that that this is like a full-time thing. It's a it's not a a lifestyle change, so to speak. I mean it is a lifestyle change, but it's not like, oh, I'm gonna try a new diet or something. You know, this is like a daily commitment type thing. And, and, and I like it. It's made my life much better, but, but, you know, every day I force myself to sit down at my desk and write anyway to write my other stuff. And then I, now I also sit down every day at about the same time and I write for RE uh, into that post of whatever I'm thinking about that, but it also for me to think about it all day long too. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times we hear, at least for me, when I hear a lifestyle change or I'm going to make a shift, like, I don't know what it is, but it's a lot of times those things in my experience, speak for myself, they haven't stuck or it's a bit of a, a fad or a trend. And, and you're right. This is not to like, not to scare anyone off, but this is a totally, it's a, it's a totally different thing. It, it, it has, it has been for me too. Bad. Everybody would do it. You know, it's not, you know, it's, it is definitely a, it is a, you know, again, you're right, not to scare people off, but it is a whole different way of doing things. You know, and part of me used to think of like, well, how could I possibly keep working in restaurants if I'm not drinking? Well, it turns out it's not that hard, you know, even though I'm not, it's a different kind of thing, but, you know, I, I have just as many opportunities to have a drink after work as I did when I was in the restaurant as I do now. And I don't, and it's not a big deal. I still hang out with people I knew and it's still, I still have fun. It's not like, you know, I used to think, oh, well, if you can't drink, then what are you going to do? Well, it turns out you can do a whole lot of stuff and, and a lot of it's the same. I still play pool. I still play pool badly, from time to time. <laughs> maybe less badly, you know, but, you know, I used to think that, well, if I quit drinking and everything comes to a, a crashing halt and it wasn't till I figured out that that wasn't really true, that you know, that helped, that helps this, whatever it is that made it switch in my mind. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about those early days. And then, and then even the more recent days, what sort of struggles have you, 
have you faced? You know, what were some challenges that that you faced and that you've that that you've been able to overcome, and and maybe how how those challenges have how you've been able to approach them differently from from a sobriety standpoint versus how they may have played out in the past. So say like go back to January. One of the things I had to figure out is is and I'm better easier with it now, but at first I did I was terrified. Um, how do I cook without alcohol? Mm-hmm. Not that the I mean the recipes can are the recipes, that's fine, but it was always there. So you know there's always an open bottle of something on my counter while I'm cooking. And so I just cut that out altogether. I even jiggered a few recipes to use other things so you know that so I didn't need the wine that was going to go in it. Some of the recipes worked that way, some didn't. That's fine. But you know, just not having that plethora of open bottles of of wine and beer and sherry and and all the other things that I would had to be in my cooking. Well, they didn't really have to be. <laughs> yeah. One cup of it went into the cooking and the other three cups went into the into the cook. And you know, so I had to change that. That was a whole thing I had to to come to grips with. It was like, can I do this without doing it? Well, it turns out it, 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 I could. And now if, you know, if I'm, I mean, I'm still around booze a lot, not like it, if I was bartending, that would be different. I don't, I don't think I could bartend, right? I don't even think I would try it. So I, I didn't really have to like, I had to come to grips with how to do things differently, I guess is, is the best way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I've never been, I, I didn't, especially early on, I didn't really have like cravings, but I think part of that was also just, I had been, I think my brain had gotten past the whole craving thing because I was just so done. And I had, you know, at that point I had been quitting on and off and on and off and on and off. So my brain's like, ah, oh, whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not, so I didn't really have the physical, I didn't have like physical cravings. There were physical withdrawals. And, um, when I, when I quit, uh, which was nice, um, when I was drinking a lot, especially towards the end, I mean, I would, my hands would have the shakes and stuff in the morning and that went away, thankfully, um, because, you know, working with knives and having the shakes is not a good plan. <laughs> it's a bad combo. Uh, it is a horrible combo, but I made sure, you know, that, that however bad I was feeling or however my day went, I still made sure I sat down and wrote at the end of the day. And that, that I think helped a lot because that, you know, the cravings, um, and, 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 or like the weird drinking dreams and stuff. I mean, so much of that is mental. And I think, cause I was able to get so much of that out through my pen onto paper and stuff. And maybe that helped my brain process the whole, I don't know, emotional part of it. So that, that I think helped, but you know, the first time I went to like into a bar to go play pool, that was weird, you know, and the, most of the places around here carry the non-alcoholic beers, the, especially athletic and stuff, which works for me. Yeah, I like the way it tastes, I, and but I've also just you know ordered club soda or nothing, and it, it hasn't really bothered. It doesn't bother me to be around it and stuff. I was kind of worried about that, and then you know going to writing and art things, you know the art openings and writer events and stuff like that. There's always a free open bar of cheap wine and and. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, but I haven't really bothered me so much because I'm aware of it. I know about it going in and and I, I have a plan for it or, you know, it's not like a surprise kind of thing. So most of my friends around here, they all know what I'm doing. So, you know, if I'm, we're going over to a friend's house for dinner and stuff, it's not like a big deal. No one's going to pour me a glass of wine and just hand it to me and be like, Oh, what, you don't want it. So 
you know, I don't have that problem. You know, one thing that stands out, Mike, is that just the way that you talk about writing it, it, it popped into my head when I was in, when I was in treatment, I had to, uh, I had a journal and I remember uh, I was, I had some conflict. My wife and I were going through some stuff and, and my counselor told me to journal about it. And I was never like, I was just never that guy. I was never a journaler. And I'm like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? What format? I don't know how to do this. And she just like, she's like, hey, dummy, like just put pen to paper. Like, that's it. I don't care what your margins are. And I just, I remember how powerful that was because it got that, that mess out of my head and it actually turned it into like, I could start to see like what was, what I was actually thinking versus just kind of that, that storm cloud that was in my mind when I actually put it on paper. And I, I, I gotta believe that that's been a huge, I mean, well, you've said it. And I think that's a, a huge benefit to your sobriety today. The, the dedication that you've put into, you know, taking that, those daily reflections and, and putting pen to paper. And yeah, I think that's, I just, I got to believe that that's given you a, tr- a tremendous amount of strength to be able to move forward and then just insight on, on what you've been going through and, uh, and serve as a motivator as well. Yeah. It's, and it, it lets me get ahead of things. Like uh, the last, last week was my, would have been my sister's 58th birthday. She passed away uh, a bunch of years ago um, in an accident. And normally that day would be horrible for me. You know, it would be like, definitely not have any brain cells left at the end of the day yeah and um you know it wasn't it, it was entirely different this year and but i know i knew it was coming and i was writing about it before it got there and and you know things things like that it's like if you just let them at least for me if i just let them stew inside of my head and don't figure it out you know or not figure it out but don't let it out then that's when bad things are going to happen i used to even in my in my relationship now, it's like I'm way, way more open than I ever been. But I also lived alone most of my life, other than a brief like I had, you know, a brief period of three years while I was married and another brief period of three years when I was married. Now, now these nine. But in between all those periods, I lived by myself. And you know, I didn't have I never had hardly ever had roommates, or if I did, it'd be like three guys to share a house and never see each other. <laughs> and so I kept all that stuff inside of my head, uh, and, you know, other than, uh, you know, I was journaling the whole time about my stories and about other things, but I never, ever got this, my stuff out of my head on the, on the paper. And, and it's, it's helped me a lot. I'm sure there's a therapist somewhere who'd be like, yes, yeah, I've been telling this guy all along <laughs> been doing this. And he never listened to me, but there never was one of those. So, you know, maybe I just stumbled upon something that it, it you know, mentally it works for me. Even a little thing, I, I told Paul about this once he, we, when we did the, um, the Buddhism uh, class with Patrick. Oh, uh, yeah. The mindfulness class. Yes. Uh, Paul ended up in one of our breakout groups with me, and, and we were talking about how we were approached, like, you know, if you thought you were, you know, especially early on, if you thought you needed a drink. Well, I carry a little notebook. I carry lots of notebooks, but I have a little notebook that's in my pocket all the time. It's not for, it's mostly not for work. It's for if random ideas pop into my head. So I always have a pen and a piece of paper to write something down. And I started like, if I had an idea, a thought, like I really needed a drink, I stopped and I wrote down what time it was, what day it was, what drink I wanted, why. And then for like 30 seconds, that's all it took. And 
there's a bunch of them randomly throughout these little notebooks. I flip through them. I'm like, what the hell was I doing that day? <laughs> but it made me stop and write it down and got it. It got it out of my head onto a piece of paper. And then I didn't want it anymore. And it was, it was just one of those little things. And I only did that for a little while. It was like really early on in the not drinking. And I couldn't figure out, you know, the first, when I was still doing, doing the spin cycle thing, I never really thought about it. If I, picked up a drink and drank it. I'd pick up a drink and drank it. And I'd be like, oh shit. And I screwed up my streak and now I got to start over. And this time I was, because I was trying to have a plan and, and come up with so hard that I added this idea of just writing it. If I had a thought about it, I'd write it down first. And by the time I wrote it down, I didn't need that drink anymore or want it, or maybe I did, but I didn't, I didn't take it because at least I made myself aware of it. And so you know, and, and writing is not for everybody. It worked for me, but it's also because I've been doing it most of my life, but I finally started doing it about myself. And I think that's what helped. I think it's a, I think it's a great tool. And, and I think it's definitely something that, that people should I give it a shot. That's the, that's the beauty of this thing is it's, there is no, there's no singular path, but I think it's worth a shot. Mike, we are at the rapid fire round. In 30 to 60 seconds. You ready to answer these questions? Let's do it. All right. Number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? Oh, definitely that I, I couldn't do my job at all. <laughs> yeah. Pesky industry. Yeah. What is a positive that you did not expect in a life without alcohol? I am sleeping so much better. I used to have so many bad anxiety dreams. I had no idea. I just thought I dreamt a lot and they're gone. That's awesome. Gotta love that sober sleep. Uh, three, what is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Uh, athletic IPA. I like that stuff, man. I was never, <laughs> when I was drinking, I drank just just this jankiest beer. But uh, <laughs> I like some of the, I mean, there's some really good craft in a, any any drinks out there that are that are good if if that's something people are interested in trying it, it's nice too because i used to be a beer snob so i would only drink really good beers and most of the non-alcoholic ones used to be horrible now they're good so yeah there's some really good stuff out there what's your plan on sobriety moving forward uh just keep doing what i'm doing it's it, it's been a, a great almost year and, and you know i have a lot of plans and stuff that i want to do with my life and and if I keep doing what I'm doing, then I'll be able to. Nice. Uh, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in re in early recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Patience. It is, you know, the, I think the first time I, I, I decided I was going to quit, I thought it would be like easy and like, okay, I made the switch. Everything is fixed. Everything is not fixed. Um, if anything, everything gets worse before it gets better and you have to be patient. And when I wasn't patient, it was a sure sign that I, I was going to slip up. Yeah. A patience, valuable tool. And last Mike, but certainly not least, can you give listeners your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line. <laughs> oh man. Uh, if you're throwing somebody out of a bar for doing exactly what you're going to be doing four hours later. Might be time. <laughs> Them, them blinders. Sometimes we don't want to see it in ourselves. Mike, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I want to thank you uh, also um, just as a, as a community member of, in Cafe Area. I, I want to thank you for for your commitment to yourself and your commitment to the community and and 
and showing up for other people. And I hope that you can see that as, as some service work, because when we share what we're going through, it, it, it helps other people. And you're doing that in a big way today and you consistently do it in the community. So I, I appreciate that. And I know that other people do as well. Well, thanks. I, you know, this was a blast. It was a lot of fun. All right, brother. I appreciate you. And we'll talk to you soon. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Mike, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. And also a huge shout out to Mike for his recent milestone of one year. Nice job, dude. A friend of mine recently recommended the book Us by Terrence Real. I'm just getting into it. And so far, I really like it. I wanted to share a quote from the foreword by Terrence. This world does not belong to us. We belong to one another. I loved this quote and I needed to hear that message. It's been easy for me in the recovery space to extend that love to people, but it's not always easy in my day-to-day life. I think we all have people in our lives that we could call sandpaper people. They just kind of rub us the wrong way. There are times where my response to these people has been to not engage and to take the so-called high road, but there are moments where I can even act a little superior. I'm not engaging in this BS, but can you believe this person? I felt a bit convicted about this, and I think this is why the quote hit close to home. What am I doing to be a part of these people's lives? How am I using my experiences for the greater good when it comes to these situations? Now, I've got to be mindful about this. I don't need to pour myself into every situation I come across, and I need to have appropriate boundaries. But some of these folks are in my life on the regular. Whether it's coworkers, neighbors, church members, family, like it or not, everyone that's in my life isn't going to be a ray of sunshine. But if I can shift my perspective and my approach from one of complete isolation from anyone who doesn't give me the warm fuzzies, to embracing the idea that we belong to one another, what could that look like? Right away, I feel like it opens the door to a little more compassion and a little more empathy. Can I provide support, love, or encouragement without buying into any negative energy? I think so. Again, this isn't about giving everyone full access to me or buying into the drama or conflict, but even some subtle positive energy can have an impact on those around me. Time will tell, and for today, I'm going to try to take a little more ownership in us. Thanks for being here, RE, and remember, we're the only ones that can do this, but we don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.